0: Welcome to Switch on Pop. I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. Nate, loyal listeners will recall that you are a
1: professor of musicology. Correct. What are your students up to these days? My students, I choose to believe, are all uh, diligently preparing for their final examinations. Very diligent students. Yes,
0: everyone. It's funny, when people ask me about what it was like to write our book, I find myself immediately flashing back to those moments I'm sure some of your students are experiencing when the writing in front of you just seems to drag on for eternity. Oh my god, the terror of the empty page. It's the worst. Lucky for us, the internet introduced me to the Lo-Fi Beats playlist on Spotify, which I found exceptionally useful to write to. I'm not the only one. According to a study by Chartmetric, lo fi and other ambient music has experienced a spike in listenership as more people work from home during social distancing.
1: Interesting. Lo
0: fi. That's what we're going to investigate today. I want to get a sense of that sound. I feel like a great example would be the song Bye by Branky.
1: You notice? Uh, sorry, I was writing an essay on nationalism. What are we talking about? <laughs> we're talking about lo fi music.
0: We were supposed to be listening oh, to right, lo fi right, right. music. And that's the point. Yes, yes. It's engaging, but not enough to be
1: distracting. It just helps you uh, work on whatever you're working on your little paper. I hear a lot of sparseness, you know, just two main textures here this electric piano melody and a drum beat, kind of a slower tempo, a lot of spaciousness these figures that repeat over and over again. It's very, very soothing to listen to. It definitely is, yeah. It has that looping sort of structure. There's no clear hook, there's no vocals, has
0: some jazzy sort of sampled qualities to it, and it's slow. The beat kind of lags. I also really love that it has these sort of naturalistic sounds, the sort of hissiness, and is is that like rain in the background?
1: Rain or perhaps the crackling of a vinyl record that hasn't been dusted. Yeah, it's very comforting. Totally.
0: Branky's productions are all over the lo-fi world. Their song People is currently on the Spotify lo-fi beats playlist that we love so much. <laughs> What I think is particularly notable about lo-fi is that it exists in this internet-driven subculture that is hugely popular along with other affiliated genres like synthwave and vaporwave. Lots of people are listening to it, Mm. but it simultaneously exists outside of the Billboard chart structure. I think part of the reason why is that this is wildly popular music that is composed almost to be ignored today I want to break down the lo-fi sound into its component parts and try to understand where did lo-fi hip-hop come from how did it find its audience and finally I want to look at how this genre challenges our core understanding of what popularity in music even means
1: mm. okay that's all yeah
0: great. <laughs> all right, we're gonna do a lot but it's gonna be really fun <laughs> we get to listen to some very soothing music in the process first things first Where did the lo-fi sound originate? I'm on the edge of my seat. So if you ask any lo-fi producer today, or any journalist who's written about lo-fi, they'll inevitably cite the late
1: James DeWitt Yancey, better known as J. Dilla or J.D. Dilla has come up a few times. Yeah. Most recently on our episode celebrating the 20th anniversary of D'Angelo's Voodoo, an album heavily influenced by Dilla's uh, production approach.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Dilla produced for so many greats. Folks like Erykah Badu, Common, Buster Rhymes and the Roots. Here's his piece so far to go featuring Common and as you mentioned D'Angelo. It's one of his most recognizable works.
2: It's about that I've seen. I'm home, but We don't have to think no more. It's and raw, and This is what I came here for. Uh.
3: You
1: Very, very cool. Totally.
0: And it has a bunch of those components that we talked about. The song lays out, I think, three important techniques that Dilla helps herald into the lo-fi sound. So first is that it's sample-based music. Second is that loose drum feel. And finally, the low-fidelity vinyl hiss. Mm. So think of the first, sampling, right? Looking back to the 80s, 90s era of hip-hop, you can tell that this is sample based beat production. Right. And so far to go, Jay Della is sampling the Isley Brothers' Don't Say Goodnight. Ah.
4: Ooh,
2: it's
0: a hot track. Damn. Dillo wasn't the first person to sample, but he is credited with being a master of the craft. He knew how to take a little moment like that and put it in an entirely new context, make fabulous new compositions. just his craft and sampling, what he's very much known for is, as we mentioned, that laggy, loose strumming feel. Mm-hmm. Jay Dilla was famous for taking sounds from a machine and making them sound more human. Hmm. And this came up in our piece about D'Angelo, where Questlove has mimicked Jay Dilla's sound style on the record Voodoo. Right. That's kind of the sound that Quest was borrowing, which is Fascinating, right? Like someone sampling (laughs) acoustic drums, putting them onto a machine called an MPC, and then playing them back in the most human way to then later be imitated by another live drummer.
1: Yeah. Wild stuff. uh, What a complicated tapestry is our modern existence.
0: A beautiful thing. So I talked to our friend and colleague, Estelle Caswell, about this. She made a video for Vox as part of her Earworm series about... What set Jay Dilla apart as a producer? Here's Estelle.
3: One thing that people talk a lot about why people look to Jay Dilla as sort of this almost godlike figure is that the MPC was built for making hip-hop beats and things like that way easier. There's this tool called quantization, which essentially, like, if you're playing a drum pattern— And your kicks over four beats are a little bit off. Then you can just use quantize on the MPC and it'll snap them to the nearest beat. But what J Dilla did was he like intentionally didn't use quantize. And in a lot of cases, his kick drums were off by a fraction of a second.
0: So the MPC was this sample-based drum machine that was popular in the 90s amongst hip hop producers. And one of the things that it lets you do is put all of the various instruments in perfect rhythm. But Jay Dylan mm. didn't do that. He intentionally played his rhythms loose so that like the kick and the hi-hats might not land at the same time. More like a drummer than a drum machine, if you will. Uh-huh. I wanted to demonstrate this power of quantization by producing a song of my own under my producer name, Charlatan. It's a piece that I made just for you, Nate. I called it Wasted Jazz.
1: All right, give me a taste of that.
0: I use my drum machine to automatically align the drummer and the bass player in this track in perfect rhythm. What producers and Estelle called quantization. So here's the mm-hmm. quantized version of the same song. So I isolated the drummer and the bass player to see that they're playing in alignment there. Here's the version where they're, well, having a bit too much fun.
1: Yeah, charlatan in the house. I'm feeling that, Chuck. (laughs) Thanks, man. That makes me wanna go read a book and write a report on it. Mm. Uh, The point being, right, it has this like really
0: loose feel. It's not quite in time.
1: There's such a subtle difference between those two, and yet the outcomes are completely different. The first feels very sort of driven and locked in, and the second feels really kind of spacey and loosey-goosey. That's really – I like hearing those back-to-back. That's cool. I'd
0: say that the second one has a lot of ooze, if you will. (laughs) The primary thing simply being that the instruments are playing together but intentionally not at the same time. Mm. Okay. So we established that Jay Dilla has this sample-based production. He likes to play his samples in a very loose sort of way. Mm -hmm. There's a third and final thing about Dilla's production style that brings us right to the quality inherent in the words low fidelity. You said it at the very top, in fact. It's that ever-present vinyl hiss. At the time that he was producing music, he was still cutting samples from vinyl records and tapes. Here's Estelle again.
3: Depending on the quality of the record, you might have something that's crystal clear and beautiful and like super high fidelity but you also might have found a record at a record store that's like a shit ton of scratches and has pops and hisses and might skip a little bit all of that sound goes into the mpc and it's up to the producer to decide whether or not they want to filter it out or keep it
4: i gotta testify come up in the spot looking extra fly
3: an example of somebody who filtered it out a lot would be like Kanye West. I think a lot of his early stuff where he was sampling a lot of soul records sounds super clear and and new and like high quality. Whereas somebody like Jay Dilla or Mad Lib, you listen to their sampling and the records that they're choosing are kind of dusty. They really like kind of kept the scratches and the hisses and the pops of vinyl in the record. And, like, that is literally, like, a way to describe lo-fi hip-hop is, like, dusty grooves or something like that.
0: This has always been the most interesting thing to me about lo-fi hip-hop is that it it sounds intentionally created to sound old. It's made in a way that makes it sound like it's not even produced well. On And on top of that, oftentimes lo-fi producers will add in organic sounds like rain or birdsong, mm-hmm. which makes it feel like someone's bedroom window is left open while recording. And this is true in a time when home recording technology is the best it's ever been, right? You know, Phineas and Billy can produce a number one record from their bedrooms. But listening to Estelle, I finally understand that it's Jay Dilla's combination of samples played mm. slightly out of time with a lot of hiss that then inspires so many future lo-fi producers and creates this whole aesthetic.
1: Interesting. Yeah, it stands in opposition to the kind of anodonic chamber that's so much pop production exists in where every sound is like shrink-wrapped and devoid of any blemish or rough edges, this lo-fi style is kind of leaning in and even adding in those rough edges in case you don't have enough of them. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so now I feel like I have a clear idea of kind of the musical building blocks of this lo-fi sound. But an unanswered question for me is why, when I go onto Spotify and check out this playlist, am I just assaulted by, like, anime characters? What is that about? (laughs) And pretend I don't know anything about anime because I don't.
0: If you search for Lo-Fi on any streaming service, it seems you get all of these branded anime characters, often studying, giving a clue of what Mm. you're supposed to do. And actually, this is an important part of Lo-Fi's history. People come to lo-fi in many ways, that's for sure, but something happens in television around the time that Dilla is hitting the peak of his career as a producer that dramatically widens the audience for his style of production and is connected to that anime artwork. Dilla and his peers, like Madlib and Japanese lo-fi producer Nujabes, start making their way onto the popular TV program, Adult Swim, known for its anime shows.
4: What?
1: (laughs) Did you ever watch Adult Swim? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Space Ghost Coast to Coast? Yes. Maybe a little Dragon Ball? Mm, no. No. None? Uh, robot Chicken? Yeah. I want to say.
0: <laughs> Definitely. In a profile from 2018, Vice noted that this anime look that we're getting is, at least in part due to the fact that Adult Swim was acquiring a handful of popular anime shows already using beats from these producers. So the sound that starts to fill up chunks of empty airtime between shows and becomes synonymous with the programming, they start to use that sound as commercial bumpers. It made the sound recognizable to millions of American teens. Here's a sample of an Adult Swim bumper. All kids out of the pool for Adult Swim. All kids out.
1: So, if I'm getting this correctly, like millions of young people were first exposed to Jay Dilla's style while watching anime cartoons on Adult Swim. That's exactly right. Fascinating.
0: Very sadly, Jay Dilla passed away at the young age of 32 in 2006, but his influence certainly lives on, right? In the early 2010s, the kids who've come up on Adult Swim and Jay Dilla. They start making their own music, lo-fi, and suddenly you have a generation of aspiring music producers who are emulating the sound of J Dilla. And beyond that, they have accessible music software with pre-cut samples. that are all sliced and diced and ready to go, stuff that Dilla would have to do manually and take Mm. hours and hours.
1: Kids these days.
0: (laughs) Yeah, kids. And they're making beats, not necessarily for anyone to sing a rap over, just those loops of oozy, jazzy, sample-filled Ooh, that crunchy stuff, right mm. They sound a lot like the instrumental song snippets that used to fill
1: the bumpers in
0: between adult swim shows
1: mm. that's so funny that this music that we now associate as being background music may have originated in this context where it was sort of the the background or the connective tissue between like a uh, TV shows. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it then becomes the things you study too. There's actually some science that backs this up. There there are real studies that show that background music done just right can improve cognitive function by boosting our mood, delaying fatigue, and even sharpening concentration over time as long as there aren't lyrics, which can have a demonstrably negative effect on anyone's work performance.
1: Yeah. I I know from personal experience that listening to music with lyrics while you're writing is a terrible idea because you start to put the lyrics into whatever document you're working on. (laughs) And all of a sudden you're like, I firmly believe that this policy is bad because I'm toxic.
4: I'm slipping under. No, no, wait, wait,
0: what? Yeah, it's not a good idea to plagiarize Britney Spears in your paper. Like that's not going to go over well someone cynical could say well this stuff was made as interstitial music and now it's study music like it's totally useless but that is exactly the point like interstitial music needs to be interesting enough to keep your attention just enough that you don't want to change the channel in the same way that you need to listen to this stuff so that you're not going to get up from your seat and stop studying like it has that same kind of effect on us Mm. okay so now we know how these beats are made we know where they come from we know that they're wildly popular, but I have a difficult question for you. Okay. Can you name one lo-fi producer?
1: Yeah. Uh, Brinky. The producer that we talked about at the beginning of the show. Well, that's just a coincidence. And
0: how about a second producer?
1: Um, Squeezy Bops Johnson. I
0: love squeezy bops johnson even though you just made them up
1: ah busted okay no i can't name another one is that what you wanted to hear um yeah actually it is
0: what i wanted to hear isn't it strange that this genre is so wildly popular and yet we can't name a single producer even having written the majority of our book listening to this stuff in the background uh now that you pointed
1: out yeah that is a little weird
0: why that is and the implications for the artists who make this music when we return By those chill vibes, uh-huh. the story of lo-fi is a story about power.
1: Ooh, scintillating.
0: In order to understand lo-fi hip-hop today, you need to know that it's found its mainstream fan base on YouTube. In 2011, YouTube rolls out this feature that gives birth to the entire lo-fi ecosystem as we know it today. The 24-hour 7 live stream. The 24-7 live stream was actually originally designed for large-scale live broadcasting of things like sports games and news conferences. But around 2017, this same tool in the hands of DJs led to a proliferation of 24-hour YouTube radio stations. Hmm. Channels like College Music and Chilled Cow, these stations led the way. They go back-to-back and play tons of this oozy lo-fi from a variety of creators. Like, there's just like, it seems like there's like, an endless amount of this music. And to show you what I'm talking about, can you log onto YouTube right now? Yeah. So let's search for lo fi beats.
1: L O M F I beats. Okay. We've got uh, Chilled Cow. Yeah. College music. Yep. Lo-fi beats to quarantine and stay indoors, too. Huh. Lo-fi beats to relax slash study, too. Yeah, all right. You're making your case here. All right, which one do you like? Let's
0: choose one. Let's let's go check it out.
1: Lo-fi miracle wave beats to relax slash get nothing done, to. As in Angela <laughs> Miracle? Sorry, what? <laughs> let's go check out a chilled cow station. Okay. What do you see? Well, I see a looping anime image of a, a young girl studying in her bedroom with a cat. It's very soothing. Okay. And I'm listening to one of these Dilla-esque beats and so are 39,086 other people.
0: Just right now? Any given just, moment?
1: Just right now, yeah. At 3.08 on a Wednesday. Well. Wow. Also, there is a chat box that is just lit up like a Christmas tree. It's going so fast. (laughs) What are people talking about? People are just putting in like random letters. Someone says for all the high school seniors, let's go and keep on studying. Oh, that's, that's great. (laughs) Someone said my, my little brother is addicted to this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So there is a whole community of people who are, who are participating in this live radio stream with you potentially studying for their exams, all these uh, looks like a bunch of high schoolers
1: that are um, getting chilled, cowed with you. Yeah, it makes me feel like I'm not alone, you know, pulling an all-nighter or something. (laughs) I think what's notable here, though, is that this stream,
0: unless you're chatting, which is probably a distraction from your studying, isn't really meant to be watched, right? It's meant Mm. to be played in the background, in a tab next to your paper that you're writing. Which means that the artists whose music is playing aren't necessarily being recognized. And this is where the power imbalance with those curators comes into play. I actually spoke to a journalist who's been reporting on exactly
4: this subject. My name is Sherry Hu. I'm a freelance music and tech writer and the owner of the music industry newsletter Water and Music.
0: Sherry says that the curators of these live streams, channels like College Music, Chilled Cow, Cow they're often more recognizable than the artists themselves.
4: So I'm an avid listener to those live streams when I'm working. It serves a very specific function of helping me focus. And so I will admit that I'm not mm. like looking at the screen every time a new song comes up to see which artist is playing. And so multiple songs will kind of go past a lot of the time without me really knowing which artists are being streamed. So they're not totally anonymous, but they, they definitely take a backseat in terms of name recognition.
1: This is kind of a unique musical ecosystem. So much of our appreciation of music is connecting with an artist and their identity and their narrative. And here it's like, nope, it's just kind of going by in the background. That's very different than a lot of our musical listening experiences.
0: Exactly. I mean, in theory, streams like these would be great exposure for smaller producers who are trying to build their fan base. And yet the channel Chill Hop, which has, what, 2.75 million subscribers – thousands of people tuned in at any given moment, it makes you wonder about the value of that exposure. If the people, quote unquote, watching the streams are just listening to them passively. Yeah. Setting the exposure question aside for a moment, I think there's another bigger rift in the ecosystem that tends to isolate power in the hands of platforms and curators. like platforms like Spotify and Apple Music that generate income from premium subscribers. YouTube generates the vast majority of its revenue from advertising, which means that in a situation like these 24/7 live streams, there's no functional per play royalty structure at work. The ad money follows the channel owners, not the artists. It's then on curators to pass that payout to lo-fi artists whose songs appeared in the stream. Here's how it's played out for Seneca B. She's a lo-fi producer who's had tens of millions of streams and has been featured in these YouTube channels.
5: I've never once received a payment from anyone from a YouTube channel at all, ever.
1: God damn! I know, right?
5: And it's not because they're not good people. It's usually the fact that YouTube pays so little that like this, this lo-fi playlist with 4 million views that has two of my songs and 10 others by other people, it's like the amount of money this person probably got for that is like nothing. And then trying to split it up between like 10 different people is like you'd be paying us like $30 a pop.
0: So this economy is kind of built into the structure of YouTube. But Sherry says there's a specific reason why big streaming numbers on YouTube aren't translating into big dollars for the artists.
4: This is like a very specific thing about Love Hip Hop live streams or any 24-7 live stream on YouTube. Normally, if you have a YouTube video that's like 40 minutes long, and you want to monetize it, YouTube will usually seed ads every like 10 minutes or so. But for a 24-7 live stream, I think normally there's only an ad when you first open the video and that's it. For some of these videos, the average watch time will be like 40 to 50 minutes, which is a really long time, but there's only one ad being served in that entire time. And so these channels don't have that much ad revenue to work with in the first place. And then if they were then going to try to take that revenue and split it among all the songs that were consumed in a given time period, I think that would just be costly and unrealistic on their part. And I think the artists and producers in this space understand that as well.
0: So there's simply not enough advertising revenue for this whole thing to even work out to start paying the artists. It makes me wonder then, where does someone like Seneca B go if they want to see some returns? She says the answer is Spotify.
5: When you distribute on Spotify, even if you get included on a ton of playlists, like the money goes to you because it follows the song. But it's just the volume taken to get there is, like, kind of high. But it's like, yeah, once you get, like, 500,000 players, like, you may get a check for 1,000 bucks or something, which is definitely something.
1: Wow. I mean, yeah, that's definitely better than YouTube. But 500,000 plays to a couple thousand dollar check, that, that's, that's not good math.
0: It's really hard. It's a volume game. And the curators understand this just as much as the artists do. In fact, they're still running these 24-7 live streams, but they're also migrating a bunch of these curated song lists over to Spotify and Apple Music in the form of playlists. However, there's a challenge here, right? Playlisting in and of itself doesn't necessarily generate revenue. So the curators are actually these, these folks like Chill Hop and College Music. They're now evolving in order to grab a cut of the Spotify royalties, here's Sherry explaining what I mean.
4: Chillhop, for instance, they now have a label and a publishing business. They'll sign an individual uh-huh. track and release it on like your standard paid streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Music. And I know for Chillhop, their label business now it makes up the majority of their revenue because they're actually getting royalty payments from Spotify for their own catalog.
0: So basically, this like pseudo industry of curators, live stream, YouTube. They're starting to act a lot more like the traditional recording industry. They are signing deals with these artists so that when those artists are played in Spotify and Apple Music and other places, parts of those royalties are going to the curators. Whoa. Okay. They want to get in on that business. Gotcha. And the curators, they're trying to find a way to translate this massive audience into a sustainable business. Like it is a volume game. But – it's not one that's necessarily great for the artists. Seneca B, who we spoke with, though grateful for some of the passive income that streaming brings in, she's actually now attending law school. And frankly, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, you know, honestly, very rarely is music a career.
1: I guess it makes sense in a way. You know, this is one of the most intractable issues that musicians are encountering today is like, how is your music valued by the the music industry as it stands? And like so many other artists, lo-fi beat makers are finding that it's not really commensurate with with the kind of work and attention that their music is getting. But I think
0: the things that artists produce can be meaningful art that give people relief, that help them work and study and inspire people to get through the last few pages of that book that they're trying to close when they have a massive deadline coming up. Okay, so Nate, we've been listening to Lo-Fi Beats, which means obviously there's a quiz coming. Let's try to recap. What have have we
1: learned today? Okay, well, I've been hitting the book. So Lo-Fi Beats uh, are inspired by the work of Jay Dilla. They're unquantized. They hit rhythmically, kind of off the beat. They often have these vinyl hisses and other kind of rough edges, They come, surprisingly, from the world of Cartoon Network's Adult Swim, where J. Dilla beats were used as interstitial music between anime cartoons, and today they have proliferated thanks to 24-7 YouTube live streams and Spotify playlists. Where especially with YouTube, these creators do not see nearly enough of the monetary rewards of what is like a million-plus uh, subscriber business. How did I do, Charles? Ooh, dang! You were fully
0: uh, paying attention. Well, I had a I had a good professor. Oh, thank you very much, armchair professor. I feel like one of my big reflections from all of this learning has been that as much as I appreciate the ethos of making music for the community because you love it, I am 100% one of those people. I also get worried when I see a system that so severely disadvantages the people making the thing that's in such high demand.
1: I know there's this critique of whether music designed to be ignored is worth listening to at all. But I think our journey today was a fantastic reminder of how music can serve completely different purposes depending on what we need as listeners. I think there's enormous value in music that engages a different part of our brain than say Dua Lipa or Rihanna or Travis Scott. Yeah, maybe that's what we need right now. Like music that meets us where we're at,
0: managing all the troubles and everything that's going on. It, It takes us to this sort of place of zen. Yeah, And maybe we should just take an extra moment to check out who those artists are, follow them, and give them some extra love we want to give a huge thanks to everyone we spoke with for this episode sherry who you can find her work and subscribe to her wonderful newsletter at patreon.com slash c-h-e-r-i-e-h-u or just search water in music it's amazing i read it every week We've got the article that launched us into this wormhole linked in the description box. I also want to send much love to producer Seneca B for sharing her music and her experience with us. You can find her artist page on Spotify by searching Seneca space B. And many thanks to producers Evie and Weird Inside, whose voices didn't make it into the show, but who provided incredible insights into the world of lo-fi. You can find Evie's artist page on Spotify by searching E-E-V-E-E. Really cool stuff weird inside is weird dot inside one word we'll link to some of their music in the show description as well other things you can find in the description are links to some other great reporting on lo-fi if you're curious to learn more and also of course we have a playlist we've pulled together all the music from the episode into one fabulously curated playlist go check it out this episode was produced by the fabulous megan lubin really appreciate the work on this piece it snaps Additional production by Bridget Armstrong, Nishat Kerwal, Liz Nelson, myself, Charlie Harding, and of course, Nate Sloan. Our editor, mixer, and engineer is Brandon McFarland. Our illustrator is Iris Gottlieb, and social
1: media by Abby Barr. We're members of the Vox Media Podcast Network, and you can find episodes of our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We will be back in another week with a- Whoa, 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 real talk, Nate. I have to interrupt you here. Yes, what- how dare you? We're not just coming back for another
0: episode next week. We're coming back for the episode next week. We're going to speak to the person who
1: inspired the original show. St. Jepsen may she always smile down upon us. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to chat about her music.
0: We're going to talk about some of the really fun origin stories we've never told. And until then,
1: thanks for listening. You faked me out, Charlie. That's sneaky, man. That's sneaky. Thanks for listening.